Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. Right now, Steve is exploring the important prophecy term, the Son of God. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello, and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In today's program, we're going to continue in part B of point number one on our worksheets. And uh, if you're joining us for the first time or are not familiar with the worksheets where we find all the scriptures that we're using, you can go to the radio station, as the announcer has pointed out, and you can download it there. But we are in point B, and I say point B because we have seven sets of terms, uh, and the first one is comparing and contrasting the term the Son of God with the term the Son of Man. And going through a number of scriptures, we finished up looking at the Son of God, and we have started um, here in the last program or so looking at the Son of Man, and we are establishing the point that the Son of God is used when, when righteous people are in view in the conversation, or we're talking about uh, Jesus bringing rewards with him when Jesus is talking to the church, the believers, the righteous He's not talking about judgment for sin because he's coming to reward. Whereas contrasting that with the term the Son of Man, where we're, we're beginning to see here as we start in this portion, where God is a just God. God is a God of judgment. God is a God of recompense. And he will take vengeance out on people who, who uh, go against him, who refuse his son who um, in the Old Testament we refuse to follow his commandments of the law. He is a just and he's a loving God, and he makes that very clear to the people. And I believe it's part of that loving God aspect that he goes to to great lengths to show everyone what will happen to them if they do not love God back. He wants you and me to love him, and in order to show our love for him, it says that we should be about pleasing him. And the Bible tells us how to please him. It tells him, it tells us that we need to be studying his word because that's where we learn who he is, what his character is, what his plans are. Remember, he wants us to know all the plans that he has for mankind, the good and the bad. And he wants us, you and me, as his children through the blood of Jesus Christ, to know even the plans he has for the unbeliever because we can use that to, one, help us more fully understand who our Father is, that he is a a just God but also a righteous, loving God, and it also helps us to share that that rather difficult information with um, our, our neighbors and our acquaintances who do not know uh, don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And remember, you can't have a relationship with God unless you first have a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Bible makes that very clear. 
So for those who do not have that relationship or perhaps are questioning that the Holy Spirit is is, uh, touching on their lives and causing them to have an interest, that you can share with them not only the good news of Jesus Christ, but you can also share what's in store for those who refuse to accept that good news through a belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior. So we went through Deuteronomy 7, as you see on our worksheets, seven and uh, Deuteronomy 7, verses 9 and 10, to show the, 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 the glorious love of our Father as well as the wrathful, vengeful side of our Father. And then we went to Nahum, a uh, prophet that came along after Jonah, and went to Nineveh, and again, used some very descriptive terms uh, to describe the wrathful, vengeful nature of uh, our Heavenly Father. And then we went to Matthew, and I wanted to start today by just reviewing quickly in Matthew chapter 3, we've now brought it to the New Testament, we're now talking about Jesus, and I believe this is one of those passages that's being relayed to us uh, by Matthew, it's talking about John the Baptist, so it's John the Baptist that's doing the talking here. And in Matthew chapter 3, uh, verse 10, it says the axe, so we're talking about judgment here, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So we're talking about someone who um, wants to please God wants to please Jesus Christ. And as we learn in the New Testament, it says what pleases God, as we mentioned just a moment ago here, what pleases God is to be in his word and to be about his work, to bring about good fruits. Remember, the Holy Spirit indwells you the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And the Holy Spirit will give every believer, every single believer in Jesus Christ, is given at least one spiritual gift, one spiritual gift. It's not a talent per se. It's not like singing or something like that. It's a gift. And of course, the gifts, that's something really we, should, we could have a teaching on at some point in time in the future, a series on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But the Bible's clear about those, and it's incumbent on you, uh, as it is on all of us, uh, in the Lord's uh, church to understand what our gifts, gift or gifts are and to uh, employ those in our life because that pleases God. And we see that right here in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. It says, every tree that does not bear good fruit. In other words, you're out doing things contrary to what pleases Jesus, to what, to, uh, to what displeases God. And it says that if you're doing that, if you're not bearing good fruit, you're going to be cut down and you're going to be thrown into the fire. So verse 11 of Matthew 3 says, As for me, and again, this is John the Baptist speaking, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me, referring to Jesus, is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He, again referring to Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John did it with water for repentance, but Jesus is going to do it with the Holy Spirit and fire. So the Holy Spirit aspect of it is 
when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are changed into what the Bible describes you as being a new creation, a new creation of God. And the um, understanding of that new creation is the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit of God indwells you, and the Bible tells us in John chapter 14, the Holy Spirit will never leave you. So God is coming in to live with you in the, in the uh, manifestation of the Holy Spirit being part of your life. And the Holy Spirit wants to lead you into an understanding of the Word so that you can become more and more Christ-like in preparation for the day when you see Jesus Christ face-to-face at the Bema Seat and, and are rewarded by Christ for the things you did, your good works, your good fruit that you produced on the earth after you came to know Christ. So that's what that part's about, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. But it says that Christ will also baptize those who do not believe in him with fire. So everybody is going to be judged by Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that here in just another moment or two when we go to John chapter 5. But I want to finish up this passage right here because I think this is a clear depiction of the contrast between the Son of God and the Son of Man. So the Son of God is going to baptize believers with the Holy Spirit. The Son of Man is going to baptize unbelievers with fire. And look at verse 12 because he now clarifies what he means by Holy Spirit and fire baptism. In verse 12, his, Jesus, winnowing fork, so he's separating He's separating through judgment. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So you can see, if you will, the Son of God is going to gather his wheat. That's that's the believer's into the barn, to be with him forever. But he, Jesus, will burn up through judgment the chaff, that's the unbelievers, with unquenchable fire. And we made the point in our last program to understand the fire here, that normally when chaff is burned up, it's a a fire that lasts for a short period of time and then it's over. It has a beginning and it has an end. Well, the key point he's making here, the author is making through the leading of the Holy Spirit, is that those that are unbelievers, the chaff, will be judged with unquenchable fire. In other words, it will never go out. And of course, that's a direct reference to the lake of fire, which is where all believers will spend eternity uh, once they stand before Jesus at the great white throne judgment. And that great white throne judgment occurs at the end of the millennial kingdom. So it's at least a thousand years from now. And that will be the end of the 7,000 years that God has been dealing with sinful man. And then it will all be brought to a conclusion. And at the great white throne, not only will all the unbelievers be judged, but Satan will be judged. And Satan, all of the fallen angels the evil angels and all the unbelievers will be thrown into the lake of fire and all death and all sin will be finished. 
so that from then on it will be a perfect state on the earth. The new Jerusalem will come down to the earth as well, and that's where you and I will be, and that's where Jesus and God the Father are going to be. And it'll be just like it was on the earth uh, at the beginning of Genesis before the fall of man when Adam and Eve were walking on the earth in a perfect state. So certainly looking forward to that. But the point is there will be an unquenchable fire and all the unbelievers, Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, the chaff will be placed in that. So you can see the the rewarding side of the Son of God, and you can see the punishment side, the justice side of the same personage, Jesus Christ, only it's the Son of Man doing that. So let's um, hopefully you can see the, 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 the differentiation there because I think Matthew um, quite clearly uh, shows you the distinction there. So let's go to the what I think is the most distinctive uh, comparison and contrasting between the Son of God and Son of Man, and that's in John chapter 5. John chapter 5. So we're in the New Testament in Matthew, the first of the four Gospels. So let's go to the fourth Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We want to go to John chapter 5. And in John chapter 5, uh, if you look at our worksheets there, we want to look at verses 21 through 23. 21 through 23 to start with. And in John chapter 5, verse 21, it says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. So the Father and the Son have the same power. Even though it's a father-son relationship, the way it is uh, depicted for us so that we can identify, that was the purpose for Jesus coming to the earth. It was God coming to the earth in the form of a fleshly carnal man so that we could relate to him. And this goes all the way back to uh, Mount Sinai when the people said, Uh, to Moses, don't let God talk to us directly again. We want to talk to a representative of God. And God said, okay, that's a good thing. So he used Moses, and then he's using Jesus to speak to us. So everything that the Father has, he's given to the Son. And, of course, we learned that, again, in other places over in John, uh, particularly in the Upper Room Discourse, which is another one of our... um, sets of prophetic terms that we'll talk about in detail here in a number of programs. So we have, for just as the Father, verse 21, raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes, verse 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. So that's a very important verse right there for us to to grasp, to comprehend to understand is that the judgments that have yet to take place and there are a number of judgments not only of the church for works for um, rewards for good works but also for the unbelievers it's going to be the same personage of Jesus the second person of the triune Godhead the father has given all the judgment to the son to do that and then he goes on to detail how the son who how and who the son is going to judge verse 23 so that all will honor the son 
even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So there's a point here of um, there's going to be a command at the end of the millennial kingdom at the great white throne where it says in verse 23, all will honor. So even all of the unbelievers of all time who refused to have faith in God in the Old Testament and the understanding of what uh, a sacrificial uh, component meant when they sacrificed the animals, it was a type and shadow of Jesus Christ. So Jesus and the sacrifice for sin was evident from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament and then manifested in the form of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So the sacrifice of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and a belief in that has always been there, either indirectly in the Old Testament through the sacrifices or directly through Jesus in the New Testament. But at one point in time, when Jesus finishes judging everyone, verse 23 will be true. All will honor, because it says every knee will bow to Jesus. And that includes all of those uh, evil, hard-headed people of all time that refuse the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. They will all honor the Son. And then the second part, the second verse of verse, second sentence of verse 23, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So there's the volitional part of it. There are those that are going to refuse to honor the Son, and they're going to be the unbelievers. They're the ones that are going to be judged and placed in the lake of fire, where the fire is unquenchable, as we read in Matthew chapter 3. But ultimately, all will honor the Son, whether they want to or not, when they stand before him. And then uh, we want to go from um, 23, we want to go down to verse 27. Um, And it says in verse 27, And he, referring to God the Father, gave him, Jesus the Son, authority to execute judgment because he, Jesus, is the Son of Man. Hopefully you clearly see that, because he is the Son of Man. Now take that in verse 27 and go back up to verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The point here is he's talking about the believer, the righteous people who hear the voice of the Son of God will live. In other words, have eternal life through him. Verse 27 is, no, if you are an unbeliever, Jesus is going to come and execute judgment because he will be the Son of Man to those who refuse to see him as who he really is, the Son of God. So we're going to uh, spend some more time here in John chapter 5 in the next program because this is really foundational to our understanding of the um, contrast between the Son of God who's going to bring eternal life uh, with God to those who believe and the Son of Man who's going to bring eternal judgment, eternal punishment to those who disbelieve. So we'll do that in our next program, but we want to continue on with our Q&A where we've been looking at the role of the Holy Spirit 
uh, based on a question from Rich in Indian Springs uh, having to do with the removal of the Holy Spirit, apparently, uh, from the earth with the rapture of the church where the Holy Spirit indwells the church. And it says the Holy Spirit, through who is called the restrainer of evil in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, is removed from the earth in the rapture. And um, his question is, can people be saved during the tribulation if the Holy Spirit is gone? Uh, he believes they can be because of the Revelation 20 verse 4 says that the tribulation saints are saved. So how does that been brought about? And we were looking at uh, some Old, uh, Old Testament passages to make the point that the Holy Spirit functioned differently in the Old Testament than it does than he does uh, during the church age that we're in right now. In the church age, the Holy Spirit comes on a person and then comes into that person at salvation and dwells with you and I, members of the church, forever. But in the Old Testament, we were going through a number of Old Testament scriptures to make the point that the Holy Spirit would come on a person when they uh, became righteous and obeyed God and loved God. But if they turned from God during their life, the Holy Spirit would leave them. And we saw that in 1 Samuel 16 with uh, King Saul and King David. Clearly says he came on David and he left Saul. Psalm 51, David is praying after his uh, incident with Bathsheba that in God's punishment that God would not take his Holy Spirit from David. Uh, We saw in Exodus 31 uh, a role in Exodus 31 where God brought the Holy Spirit on artisans to give them the uh, the fine skills to build the different components of the tabernacle, uh, which was uh, used for the housing of the implements of worship, and that's where the Shekinah glory of God would, would rest and would meet with uh, Moses um, for the period in the wilderness and even into the um, promised land for several hundred years. Then we went to Numbers chapter 11 to make the point, and that's where we were at the end of our last program, in Numbers chapter 11, this is where God uh, instructs Moses to gather the 70 elders from the 12 tribes. And this is where we see the beginning, or the genesis, if you will, of the Sanhedrin, which is a, if you will, it's kind of like the Senate, the United States Senate, and the United States Supreme Court together in one body. And it's made up of 70 rabbis, very well-respected rabbis. And one, the 71st one, is the leader that they appoint. And in this case, it was Moses. And God tells Moses to gather the 70 men in Numbers chapter 11, verse 16. And then in verse 17, he says, Then I, and this is God speaking, Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take the Spirit who is upon you, upon you, Moses, and will put him upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you will not bear it alone. So we see that um, there in Numbers chapter 11 that the Holy Spirit would come on them. And then we find out uh, further on down there that... um, in verse 25 of number Numbers 11, it says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud. Remember, he had told Moses to prepare to do this. 
And then in 25, it happens. It says, the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and he took of the spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. But they did not do it again. They did not do it again. So you see that there's no sense of permanency. There's no sense of permanency of the Holy Spirit. It depended on your maintaining your righteousness throughout your life for that to take place. So we, uh, we want to go forward with that understanding, and we want to look at a couple of more, and then I want to go to Ezekiel chapter 33. So that's where we're really headed here. But I want to show you a couple of other, a couple of other Old Testament passages of the Holy Spirit coming on people um, to give them certain skills and certain um, capabilities that the normal person didn't have. So we're staying in Numbers 11, and let's go to chapter 27. Numbers uh, chapter 27, and we get to Numbers chapter 27. We're talking about um, Joshua here. Numbers chapter 27, and we want to look at verse 18. Numbers 27, verse 18, and it's God instructing Moses here. Numbers chapter 27, verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. So this is basically Moses commissioning Joshua. And you remember that uh, Moses, because he struck the rock in, in anger the second time, God said, your punishment is you will not go into the promised land. So Moses died in the wilderness, and Joshua took his place as the leader of the people. But it showed you that the Holy Spirit um, was functioning in Joshua and giving him this special uh, leadership skills that were needed. Then we want to go from Numbers over to Judges. So you have Numbers and then the last book of Moses, Deuteronomy, and you go through Joshua, the account of coming into the promised land. And then you go to Judges, Judges chapter 3. So um, Moses had led the people out of Egypt. Joshua took them into the promised land and helped uh, lead them into a conquering of the enemies of the Israelites in the promised land. And then um, Joshua dies, and God starts leading the people through what were called Judges. And in Judges chapter 3, Judges chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, it says, When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. And that's the point I want us to have right there, is the Spirit of the Lord came on the judge, and he did through all the judges, uh, through the period of what is called the judges. So the Holy Spirit would come on and give them special skills, just as he did the artisans to build a tabernacle in the wilderness. So we'll, we'll continue on with another uh, verse in Judges, and then we'll get to Ezekiel and wrap up this portion of um the Q&A as we look forward to the time of the tribulation and the role of the Holy Spirit to uh, finally answer Rich's question. 
So remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.